Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sleeper Agent. It's a new book. It's a story of the only Soviet military spy to have full security clearance in America's top secret project to build the first atomic bomb. Uh, he was a U.S. soldier, born and raised in Iowa, who charmed everyone he met, loved baseball, Walt Whitman, and all the while was sending atomic secrets to Moscow to help build their own atomic bomb, and he was never caught. The author of the uh, this new book called uh, Sleeper Agent is Anne Hagedorn. She's a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal and special projects editor at the New York Daily News, an award-winning author with five previous nonfiction books, including Beyond the River and Savage Peace. And she's taught writing at Columbia University, Northwestern, Xavier University, and Miami University. Holds an MS in journalism from Columbia and an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Denison University. And she lives in Ripley, Ohio, a town she first visited while researching her book, Beyond the River. Welcome to the program, Ann Hagedorn. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm honored to be here. So, uh, Sleeper Agent, the subtitle is The Atomic yeah. Spy in America Who Got Away. We're talking about George Koval. Is that pronouncing it correctly? Um, uh, it's actually Koval. 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 I, I have been, yeah, I was corrected by my Russian translator. Okay. Right, Koval, from the very start, yeah. First question, uh, how did you discover this? This was, uh, you know, yeah. a, a spy, sleeper yeah. agent, we'll get into it's, the definition of that, uh, who got away with it, right? Helped Soviet Union uh, yeah, accelerate their atomic bomb. I know. Got away with it. How did you discover well, this? I was interviewing uh, a gentleman for a book idea that I was working on that had to do with a story in World War One, actually, and I could not uh, get the narrative. I just couldn't uh, land it. And but I had a great interview with this guy, and at the end of it, he he knew I had uh, grown up in Dayton, Ohio, and so had he. He was a 92-year-old gentleman. And so at the end of the interview, he said, "Did you know that near where you grew up, there had been a Soviet spy during World War II?" And he said also in Dayton, there was a secret site in Dayton that was tied to the highly secretive Manhattan Project. And uh, did you know that? I said, no, I didn't. Do you know his name? Um, he said, no. And so I sort of thanked him. He said, but I think you should write about that someday. So I said, okay, uh, I'll think about it. So you know how these things are. I respected that guy. It was a great interview. Uh, I went on for about two weeks with that project, and I could not stop thinking about this possibility. You know, it was a mix of curiosity and skepticism that drove me to drop what I was doing and explore. So I did. I want to read yeah. this, uh, just to quote you from the book, and you're quoting John Earl Haynes, who you tell us is a respected American scholar of Cold War history. So quoting Haynes here, he says, Koval was a trained agent, not an American civilian. He was that rarity, which you see a lot in fiction, but rarely in real life, a sleeper agent. And I come to think of it, this is all over in fiction, right? But he says rarely in real life. So tell us about yeah. sleeper agent. What, uh, what does yeah. that mean? What is that? Yeah, that is really, I'm so glad you asked that question because uh, you can't take for granted that everybody knows that. And I've learned that from being on the road for the book. Sleeper agent basically is a spy without a legal diplomatic cover. Right, and so this spy has to blend into everyday life in the target country, uh, working in normal jobs. In the case of George Koval, he uh, lived in the Bronx. He worked at an electronics shop on West 23rd Street in Manhattan. And, you know, and then he was in the U.S. Army. I mean, those were good covers. So that's it. That's what a sleeper agent is. The difference is it's not a spy with legal diplomatic cover of which there were, you know, several in America during the war. And so George Koval, would, uh, you know, he was perfect, uh, born in America, raised uh, a bit in America. Right. Then the family went to the Soviet right. Union. At a certain point, then uh, Koval comes back. Uh, you write yeah. that he, you know, perfect American accent. In fact, he, his Russian is, is accented, not not <laughs> not English, right? Um, yeah, that's and, right. He had a hard time learning Russian. <laughs> uh, a, yeah. a, a jo outgoing, yeah. right? A joiner. Um, yeah. Knew all the stats of baseball pitchers. Uh, you know, right. he could really blend in. He, in some ways, he was American. Yeah, he even belonged to a bowling league. He played bridge. You know, he could recite Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He could recite parts of Walt Whitman. I even got a photo of his own copy of Leaves of Grass with his name on it, 1931, on the 
inside of the cover. So he blended in uh, quite well. He was even a ladies' man. I read many accounts about that. Like you said at the beginning, he was charming. And if you read uh, interviews from people, I actually interviewed someone who is 98 years old now and was a colleague of his at Oak Ridge. And he talked about how charming George was. And, you know, everybody liked George. And this gentleman I interviewed dated a woman who was the sister of somebody George was dating. So, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) he blended in. Part of what you're doing here is uh, getting out the psychology, right? Um, so he seemed to be uh, a true believer in communism, right, in the Soviet system, as far as we can tell? Well, I wish I could have interviewed him. Yes, of course. He grew up in uh, a household where that idealism was intense. And, you know, he grew up in a, appears to be a wonderfully devoted family, and that had left, and his parents had left the Soviet Union because of anti-Semitism. And not the Soviet Union, they had left Tsarist Russia in 1910 and 1911 because of anti-Semitism. And then after the Russian Revolution, anti-Semitism became a crime in the new Russia. So you can imagine how that would have been in the Koval household in Iowa. Especially, uh, I mean, that, that's an important part of the book, I think. I mean, I do, like I said, I, there is the expected intrigue of espionage details, the code names, the various cover shops in Manhattan, the apartments in the Bronx, the handler and his suspicious routines, all of that uh, adventure. But deeply beneath the surface in, in this book is the psychology of the spy, what motivated him, and you have to understand how he grew up, what the events were uh, historically that surrounded him, what was the context of his childhood. We have to understand those things when we're looking at the motivations of a spy. So I think because, uh, you know, I discovered the individual who in the late 1990s and early part of the new century had exchanges with him, another former colleague from Oak Ridge, and asked him point blank, did he have any regrets? And he said no. Uh, George uh, Koval said no. He had no regrets. So I think that sends a message that is twofold. I think that answers a big question. Why did he do it? I mean, look at the timeline. Timelines are so key here. 1939 is when he was recruited by the Red Army, trained in 1939 and uh, probably the first, let's see, seven or eight months of 1940. Look what was happening in the world at that time. And by being part of the Red Army, being an intelligence officer, he was protecting his family during wartime. So that loyalty to family was probably equal to the loyalty to the communist ideal, which, you know, his family truly believed because of when they grew up, uh, where they lived, and at what time they lived there, you know, when they lived in Russia, when they lived in America, and then returning to the Soviet Union in 1932, which he and his family did. So, you know, you have to look at the historical context to kind of understand the motives. I mean, why do people become spies? We should really, everybody should understand that, right? And in this case, it's twofold, probably, to protect his family during wartime and also because he did believe that communism would end world oppression. And that was a strong ideal in his upbringing. And that's, that's why I think he did it. He definitely didn't do it for money. And he, you know, he was a dedicated scientist. But he, he was also someone who was constantly fighting the darkness of anti-Semitism in both countries. I'm looking for a quote here. For one thing, a very good friend, Nick Clooney, a friend for years who lives near here along the Ohio River, and after he read the book, he extended to me a concept that, you know, had not occurred to me. I mean, this happens with writers, right? He said it connected him to the intensity of the Cold War battle of the American dream versus the communist workers' paradise. You know, Nick said that Koval's life personified that struggle. 
And uh, I think that's really an interesting point. And another thing about uh, his meaning came from a quote just two weeks ago from a Russian scholar who's uh, knowledgeable about Koval, and he wrote to me, George, George Koval's life journeyed through the 20th century's American and Russian destinies, and his work as an intelligence agent had such an impact on world history that his personality and fate will long be the subject of study in both Russia and the United States. And going back to what you said, the psychology, and I think part of that subject of study has to be, why did he do it? You know, what were the motives? Let's look at his life and understand that. So that brings us to the backlash of bigotry and other subjects, human cost of oppression, um, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. (laughs) Certainly, yes. So I want to follow up on on the anti-Semitism. Is that was that the main driver? Why the the family? I guess the dad came over first, and the the mother, and then the the kids were born in America. Uh, Was that the driver leading them to America out of Tsarist Russia? Yes, definitely. Yeah, very uh, interesting. You know, from the writer point of view, I have to say, part one of the book, which uh, is entitled "The Lure," and that's the you know sort of backdrop, was twice as long as it is now. (laughs) I was fascinated by this part of Jewish history. Spent a lot of time at the Center for Jewish uh, History in Manhattan and the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati just learning all kinds of details I certainly did not know to, uh, to understand what had driven the Kovals out of Tsarist Russia. And that, that's an interesting story. It, it embraces what's called the uh, Ellis Island of the West, uh, which is Galveston, Texas, and uh, the Galveston Movement, which started in 1906, out of New York, some very uh, concerned Jewish gentlemen in New York City who were trying to protect uh, Jewish immigrants and also uh, prevent uh, intensified uh, immigration restrictions for Russian Jews coming into the country. So they decided one of the ways to do that would be to open up another entry to America that would then link the immigrants to all these Western cities. And it's a fascinating story, don't you think? Yes. And so that yeah, his parents, that's how his parents ended up at, mm-hmm. in Sioux City, Iowa. Well, let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's take a break. We'll come back with a fascinating story, get into uh, how George Koval, um, you know, uh, did his work as a sleeper agent. The, the book's title is Sleeper Agent. The subtitle is The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. We're talking about George Koval. The author is Anne Hagedorn. The book is out and available now. We'll take a break and be back after this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, where researchers have developed an online tool to help analyze the costs and benefits of upgrading irrigation systems. More information available at inl.gov forward slash news. Support also comes from the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday, and celebrating 53 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 28 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com. You're listening to Access Utah right now on today, Thursday, August 12th. Today, an interview with Anne Hagedorn, author of Sleeper Agent. Stay with us. This is Science by the Slice. Sedimentary layers, known as the Tonto Group, are a distinctive and highly visible package of rocks in the Grand Canyon. These layers have long entombed a geologic record of a period of evolutionary frenzy some 540 million years ago, known as the Cambrian Explosion. USU geologist Carol Deller and colleagues report the Tonto Group is much younger than previously thought. Their findings reveal new insights about Cambrian life, as well as changes in the carbon cycle. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with the author Ann Hagedorn. Her latest book is called Sleeper Agent. Uh, the subtitle is The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away, and here's the brief uh, synopsis. It's the story of the only Soviet military spy to have full security clearance in America's top secret project to build the first atomic bomb. He was a U.S. soldier born and raised in Iowa who charmed everyone he met, loved baseball and Walt Whitman, and all the while he was sending atomic secrets to Moscow to help build their own atomic bomb, and he was never caught. Uh, he was born in Iowa. In 1932, his parents and the family returned to Russia, and then in uh, 1940, George Koval returns to America on assignment uh, to, to to be a spy. Uh, so, Anne Hagedorn, I was fascinated. Uh, I wonder if you just treat this briefly in, in the way George Koval gets recruited. So he's this kid born in America. The family returns in 1932. And then he is studying at this uh, prestigious uh, uh, school, right? The Mendeleev yeah. Institute, and and, and, and a, mo- yeah. a model uh, student, uh, very accomplished. Uh, he gets married, and then you have this this fascinating passage. The, the, now come the years of the Stalinist purges, right? Stalin's great purge. Yes. Yeah, uh, millions, right. millions executed. Millions forced to labor camps in Siberia. And uh, th- this this culture of fear, where people are encouraged to to rat on each other, right? And and so uh, yeah. George and uh, his wife uh, Ludmila or Mila received this letter uh, saying, "Hey, your your neighbor lady <laughs> it has yeah. is yeah. Uh, you know is, is essentially ratting you out, and so be careful." Yeah. I wonder if you just talk yeah. about that that atmosphere, and it's in this atmosphere that uh, that George is is called in to the the GRU and, and is recruited. Yes, uh, that's true, uh, and that goes back to uh, the question everyone always asks me: Why did he do this? Well, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the timeline. You have to look at the context, and you will see that Kovo was uh, someone that the Red Army intelligence clearly had an eye on. He was a star student in science and chemistry at Mendeleev. He had, you know, grown up in America, he had fluent English. And I think after, you know, like I said, you have to look at the timelines here and the context, and you see after Stalin's purges, those purges, you know, uh, streamed into Red Army intelligence, the combination of that, then the neighbor ratting on him, and when my Russian translator found that letter, that was a fascinating uh, find, of course, the letter written by the friend, one of the things he was in trouble for, he and his wife were in trouble for little things, like he owned a typewriter, and they would have social gatherings too often, I think. And then also they had a cousin who had a husband who had defected, and they hadn't reported that. And they were there was a long list, you know. So the combination of his skills, the empty spaces in Red Army intelligence at that time because of the purges, and uh, George's capability and, uh, and his skills and his scientific skills, um his language skills, his scientific skills, and he was a star student. Everywhere he ever went to school, he was a star student. You know, this is a guy who graduated at age 15, National Honor Society, junior year in high school at age 14, and, uh, you know, very bright. So he, he had all of these points of importance uh, that must have made him uh, quite the gem for the GRU. So, once again, going back to the timeline, September 1st, 1939, beginning of the Second World War, basically, right? That very day, he uh, was accepted to Mendeleev as a graduate student, and that very day, his life changed because uh, the Army requirements went to change in the Soviet Union, and he started to have uh, interviews, and, and then he was recruited. I don't think there was any way out. Uh, someone asked me recently, uh, why didn't he just say no? Stay home, go, you know, uh, go to school. So, and not possible, considering all of those details. And like I said, you have to study the context and you have to study what options he really had. And then you study his options and then you also study uh, his 
motives for making the decision to go. So he goes to America, studies at CCNY, I believe, right? Um, gets dra- uh, well, no, he doesn't study at CCNY until after he gets oh, drafted. Oh, I see. So he gets drafted and... Yeah. I don't know if helped by the, uh, you know, I don't know if the scales were tipped or is just uh, this just a, ha- a happenstance. He gets drafted and he gets uh, security clearance uh, to sensitive uh, sites. Yeah, well, that's another one of these timelines. You kind of have to wonder once he gets back to the United States and he comes in on a false name, of course, because uh, he had to. So it, it didn't look like anything ever happened uh, to George Coble. You know, he left Iowa and moved to New York City, as far as the record showed. And so he was, he registered for the draft, uh, you know, within an, uh, two months of returning to the United States. So that would have been in early 1941. And then he enrolled at Columbia University to take a chemistry course. And that was a very interesting part of, uh, that was in an FBI file. You got to B, by the way, in the course, <laughs> and uh, but it, his timing. So that's no coincidence. You know, I, I had a source years ago when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, a, a former prosecutor in New York, and I interviewed him about, you know, what are your methods of investigation, and and he and one of his things was, uh, you know, chronologies and timelines, and then he said, uh, don't trust coincidences. Always investigate coincidences, and so, you know, this line of events in his life, um, uh, the sequence of things from the time he returns as a Red Army trained spy, um, if you really look at it, it looks like a lot of sheer luck and coincidence, but it's really not. Uh, uh, When you look at the timeline and, you know, that uh, enrolling at Columbia is a perfect example because, gee, in 1941 in Columbia, for one thing, the New York Times, uh, just several months before, it had a front-page article about what was happening in physics, in nuclear physics at Columbia at that time, and Columbia had, was the magnet for some of the most highly regarded uh, physicists and chemists in the world in 1941, and some ended up in the Manhattan Project. And from there, there are, you have to read the book, I can't give away too much, uh, between the time he enrolls there, and then uh, and then he is, uh, you know, he continues to work at the electronic shop on West 23rd Street, and many things happen, and then he is drafted, and he goes to Fort Dix, right, and then to the Citadel, and there he is tested, the Army Classification Test. That's pretty interesting because I think a top level is you score 115 or something, and he scored 152. So once again, he sort of stood out. So if you looked at his application and you saw that, you know, on his application, his Army application, you see that, you know, he had enrolled at Columbia, and on that it says he was pursuing a bachelor degree in chemistry. He scored very high on that test, so that placed him in what was called the Army Specialized Training Program, and that sent him to, which was a program during the war. It didn't last a real long time, but anyhow, it sent, you know, uh, skilled students of science and technology to various universities to improve their science and technology uh, so that they could be uh, participate in uh, wartime projects. And so he was sent to City College of New York for one year. And then there he did very well again, and he was selected there to be part of the Special Engineer Detachment Group. And those were scientists who were sent to different sites of the Manhattan Project. He was sent to Oak Ridge uh, to work as a systems in science to the, you know, senior scientists in the project. So I don't think there was so much luck with George Coble. I think it was a kind of, I think the luck was probably for the GRU, for the Red Army Intelligence, recognizing that he would be a good candidate for being a spy, 
science in America. But, um, but you know, his original assignment had been to infiltrate uh, chemical warfare factories, find out exactly where America was in its development of chemical weapons. That was his original um, assignment. And then I think things changed probably... You know, I am uh, a fact-check extensively. I like to nail things down. But when you are doing the biography of a spy who was never caught, you don't have trial transcripts to refer to, this, that, and the other. So there is a little bit of piecing together the facts and then putting together the logical explanation, right, and doing the best you can with the facts that you can find. And so he was chosen, yes, for, you know, the Army Specialized Training Program. He was chosen for the Special Engineer Detachment Program. Then again, he was put into the Health Physics Department. That's amazing, a Soviet spy having access to, you know, this was a department that was created at Oak Ridge to measure levels of radiation contamination and such work uh, required routine visits to all the sites. And so somewhere in there I have a description. Uh, I was fascinated. It, it was in the Oak Ridge archives. I found all the details about health physics. I mean, this is a Soviet spy who was a health physicist. And why was he a health physicist? Because uh, he was good at what he did. He was, I mean, he was a good scientist, and he was part of the special engineer detachment, so he was placed in, in the health physics department and, you know, doing routine surveys of all offices and labs. Uh, the health physicists had to be, they had to learn the basic chemical properties of all the radioactive uh, materials that were uh, being produced. So that was a good place for uh, a good job for a Soviet spy. <laughs> yeah. So he undoubtedly uh, had an impact, right? There, there's a reason Vladimir Putin gave him a posthumous medal. He, uh, he I don't know if alone, but but he he was uh, one of the instrumental uh, pieces in accelerating the Soviets' atomic uh, bomb program, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and, you know, that's, uh, that's why it's good I brought up the health physics, because um, that was something that uh, I don't think people knew about until George Koval came along. But at any rate, in various areas, about three different areas, he helped to shorten the time that it took the Soviets to create the bomb. Anyway, we never believed they wouldn't, right? It was just that to have developed it by 1949, uh, that was much sooner than any of the experts thought. And, you know, what he sent, uh, details about the plant structures at Oak Ridge, sent fuel productions from Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge was the site that was producing the fuel for the bombs, which were being uh, designed and built in Los Alamos. And uh, one of the places producing the fuel, and uh, the fact that the fuel that the fuel was flown to Los Alamos—that was one of the details he sent. But um, I think two of the uh, important areas were the polonium, which was the fuel for the triggers, and I think that helped tremendously in shortening the time it took to build the atomic bomb. Because in the book, you can see how long it took us to figure out the uh, most efficient way to produce uh, polonium. That's uh, a fascinating story because it was such a new, relatively new element, especially to uh, produce quickly um, in certain amounts for the triggers. So um, the fact that he knew about polonium because of the factory where the plant that he was spent most of his time at Oak Ridge X-10, he knew about polonium from there, and then in Dayton, where he was transferred um, in June of 1945, and where they were producing and purifying polonium and sending it to Los Alamos. But this part about the health physics uh, has always fascinated me because in several interviews it comes out that uh, you know the radiation safety developments, which were unique here. Um, it must have saved, or I know they did save the Russians uh, a good deal of time and effort, 
And, you know, especially toward the end of the development of the bomb, you don't want your experts to suddenly become ill from radiation contamination. So this uh, one detail, the radiation safety uh, developments uh, that uh, George Koval was in on ground level uh, had to have helped also. And then there's the fact that Klaus Fuchs, whose name we all know, right, who sent information from Los Alamos uh, about plutonium. Koval also sent information about plutonium uh, from Oak Ridge, once again from X-10. And that what he sent was later than what Fuchs sent, um, according to the Russian scholars. And therefore, that uh, basically assured the top scientists in the Soviet bomb project uh, that they could trust what Fuchs had sent because, uh, you know, they feared misinformation coming from the West. So those are three areas, basically, four areas, right? Layouts in, uh, at Oak Ridge, uh, polonium, the health physics, the radiation safety developments, and the plutonium fuel volumes. I think it, uh, it was volume levels was what he had sent. So... Yeah, I think he made a contribution to uh, shortening the time it took the Soviets, sending uh, information that our experiments, uh, you know, had uh, revealed, and that would save a lot of time in terms of experiments for the Soviet Union. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, today we're talking with the author Anne Hagedorn. Uh, she's author most recently of Sleeper Agent, the Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. We're talking about the spy George Koval. Um, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, following a break, we'll come back with our final segment. I'll ask Anne Hagedorn why George Koval was never caught. Um, and uh, for her uh, top takeaways from this story. We'll have that following this break. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for sesame beef bowls. We always have a great time, and so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tune in Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. This summer, we try to be and stay cool. Leading our in crowd is pianist Ramsey Lewis. We'll also hear cool words and music from Tom Waits, Dr. John, Aretha Franklin, Albert Murray, and Oscar Brown Jr. Plus a visit to North Carolina's historic black sea breeze beach on American Roots from PRX. Tune in Saturday evening at 8 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. Sleeper Agent is the book we're talking about today. The subtitle is The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. It's the story of the only Soviet military spy to have full security clearance in America's top secret project to build the first atomic bomb. He was a U.S. soldier born and raised in Iowa. He charmed everyone he met, loved baseball and Walt Whitman. And all the while, he was sending atomic secrets to Moscow to help build their own atomic bomb. And he was never caught. And on the program today, we're talking with the author, Anne Hagedorn. So why was a uh, key question, of course, uh, you, you treat this. Um, 
Why was he not detected? The FBI was out quite busy, right, trying to detect spies. I think the answer to that, the simple answer to that, is that he was well-trained. He did not mingle with what they call fellow travelers, his espionage peers. He, you know, for example, at the end of the war, he was asked to take a job to extend his work as a health physicist, and he didn't. That was smart, because then once he left the Army, there would have been another security check. And when you read the book, you realize the things that could have come up. He had been arrested in 1930 for being involved in a, 1931, uh, for being involved in a protest against poverty that was part of a communist organization. He was the representative of the state of Iowa for the young communists at a Chicago convention in 1930. Those things could have popped up today, of course, they would in a heartbeat. But in those days, uh, it, you know, once he accepted another job, a job outside of the Army, there would have been another security check, and he knew that it was not smart to take that job. And, you know, his handler wanted him to. So, you know, that's just one example of a smart move. He also joined a bowling league. I mentioned earlier the playing bridge, the bowling league. So that, uh, belonging to the honorary fraternity, being very involved in all kinds of activities that had nothing to do with his political beliefs. He did not mingle with any members of the Communist Party USA. So he was well-trained. He blended in well, as we've talked about. And also there's the timing of it, the timing of when he, you know, discovered the information and sent it. The Allies are temporary allies, included the Soviet Union. It was wartime America. Our intelligence corps was focused more on Nazi, trying to find uh, German spies. And you have to look at the history of the intelligence corps at that time. You know, it was far, far, far smaller than it is now. But so it's a combination of the timing, the war, the science. I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, what would have been the reason to investigate George Koval while he was at the Manhattan Project? There wasn't a reason, correct? And so that fact, his, well, training, his blending in, and that smart move he made, after being demobilized in February 1946, he kept a very low profile and went back to school. Mm. And so, you know, after sending in a request to bring him back to the Soviet Union, but he had to wait a while for that to happen. So I, I think, you know, he wasn't detected for those reasons. Blending in well-trained intelligence agents looking in other places, if you look at the people who were detected or defected in the fall of 1945, one of them had, uh, well, you have to read about that. You have to see what they had done that sort of brought in the FBI surveillance. So that's my answer. Yeah, yeah definitely. There's, we don't have time. We're out of time here, but uh, you have to read the book. Uh -oh. But uh, it's fascinating uh, to me. His the, the the jeopardy grows right after the war. During the war, Soviet Union is an ally, right? And but after the war, the Cold War starts, and so the jeopardy increases if you got detected, right, and arrested, et cetera, et cetera. And oh yes, yeah, and that's an excellent point. Yeah, right. and yeah. and they're so just they're kind of a, a low profile. I mean, that period of time for in terms of the research, I could uh, really talk about that, but we're not going to, uh, but that period of time from when he moved back to the Bronx in February 1946 on, uh, that's, uh, that's a very interesting time in terms of the history of Soviet espionage in this country and the history of George Koval. So, and his return to Russia, uh, to the Soviet Union in October 1948, what, what he returned to is rather uh, unsettling and interesting. Do we have any indication of what his, uh, you know, he went back and became a respected teacher, uh, but uh, do we have any indication of political beliefs? Uh, he still believed in the Soviet system uh, through all that period? Do we, do we know? Yes and no. No, in terms of the details, it, 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 what comes through in the research, and a Russian translator could 
comment on this a lot is that, you know, he was totally dedicated. He, he published over 100 scientific papers in his time at Mendel Leave. He was a totally all of the comments in a tribute to him in the Mendel Leave magazine, comments from previous students talked about how he never talked about politics. He was a totally dedicated scientist. They had no idea what he had done during the war. And so uh, I, I think that there is no indication of his being politically involved at all. But there are those exchanges he had with a, a, comra, uh, a colleague from Oak Ridge, you know, late in the 1990s and early in the early 20th century. They reconnected. They were good friends at Oak Ridge, and they reconnected. And there, in those exchanges, the colleague wanted to write the biography of George. And George avoided questions about what he had done, and his only comment was that he had no regrets. You know, so and in talking to relatives, for example, his grandniece, he never talked about what he did during the war. Finally, um, what's your biggest takeaway, having spent time, in essence, living with George Koval, researching him and um, <laughs> learning about him? What's, what's, your, what's your takeaway? Well, takeaway in terms of lessons learned or significant or, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I would ask him if I could interview him. <laughs> Too bad we can't have him on the show. You know, yeah. what would I ask him? I would sort of ask him what uh, you've asked me, you know, why did you do this, any regrets, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, and I would really like to know what his name was on the false passport when he came back in 1940, because I explored three different possibilities and could never nail it down, so I couldn't put that in the book. But but anyhow, you know, there are lessons learned here. One is what we've discussed, the psychology of the spy. You know, we need to understand the hopes, the fears, the beliefs that or the decisions of an individual, as one of the early readers commented, here was a guy who was a star in high school, exceptionally, he, he was brilliant. Um, what spurs the decisions of someone like that to become a spy? You really have to look at that, study that. That's a major takeaway, and also the anti-Semitism which one of the reviewers commented that the subtext of the anti-Semitism runs through his story. And that's true. And so what is the lesson learned there? That's the backlash of bigotry. You oppress people and there will be a backlash. I think that's a lesson learned. But I also think that it's the, if you read, I think it's in the closing chapter before the epilogue, about the American embassy in Moscow and mm-hmm. the bugs that were in the structure. And, and it goes into some of the testimony at the time in the mid-1980s when that was discovered. And James Schlesinger, who was a former head of the CIA, he makes a comment that I think is something that we also need to pay attention to, which is we've always, I wish I could find the quotes, but at any rate, yeah, former Defense Secretary and CIA Chief James Schlesinger, he said that our tendency is to assume that the Russians are technically inferior to us. We do it over and over. And that that's a lesson learned here, because Cohen's story really shows the expertise and determination of Russian military intelligence and how we've often underestimated Russian capabilities. So I, I think that, you know, understanding the motives of a spy, getting into the psychology of a spy, seeing the backlash of bigotry, and recognizing in this moment of history of his, what they called his business trip to America as a spy, and looking at the Soviet espionage networks in the 1940s and the 1930s, in the West, he was underestimating the Russians' capability of uh, putting together that Soviet bomb as early as they did. Uh, there, there is that lesson. Don't you agree? Uh, of the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that we need to recognize that we've often underestimated Russian capabilities in technology and science. And there's one more. Can I add one yeah, more? Yes, certainly. There's one more yeah. takeaway, mm-hmm. and that is something that. 
you know, really goes along with the backlash of bigotry, I suppose, and that's the fact that the scapegoating, the opportunism, and the bigotry, when Hoover was sending his very skilled agents, by the way, when you read through thousands of pages of FBI reports, you start to respect uh, the agents who are working very, very hard, but that scapegoating opportunism and bigotry at that time, it blurred the vision of what was truly happening. You know, Hoover really believed that all members of the Communist Party USA were spies. And look at George Kogel. He never talked to anybody who was a member of the Communist Party USA. He played bridge. He went bowling. <laughs> he he was very active in his electrical engineering honorary fraternity. So those are the lessons learned, in my humble opinion. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story, uh, well worth the read. Sleeper Agent, the Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. And uh, the author is Anne Hagedorn. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was really great. Thank you very much. It's many cultures, one sky. As we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. As I record this, I'm going to the park. As the evening evolves into dusk, we join scientists and fan of experimentation as we explore the atmosphere where Colin starts to lift off a swift-looking delta-shaped kite at a park with great visibility and a wide horizon overlooking Salt Lake City. And this evening, as we look out to the south and west from a berm above the park, Colin releases his teal-colored kite. Yeah, I think around this time of the evening it should should work. Looks like it's ready to lift off. Yeah. This is the kite that my science colleague is <laughs> lifting off here at the whatever park this is up above the Avenue's fire station. Yeah, 11th Ave Park is a good one. It's because you get a little bit of wind current. And what is it? what's the best thing to do so you can get it up a little bit? I usually just wait till around this time of night when the wind starts shifting it uh, cools off a little bit and it seems to come switch directions and uh, I don't know I've had decent luck I think now that I'm uh, close to testing uh, the sound part of my project there seems to be a lot less wind though of course yeah <laughs> it's a little late in the summer but um, you got to try and get it up a little high to get the next uh, level of yeah for the next current yeah, yeah. If you can, if you can get it up to like a thousand feet, it makes these crazy uh, vibrations that come down the string. So it's my goal is to try and uh, record it. And how? How record it? So I'm building a couple different things. Uh, one is I'm just going to use a, a piezo electric disc, like the kind you would put on a cigar box guitar or something, and uh, try and pick up the vibrations that way. And then the other more complicated part is actually like a tension scanning circuit that I built um, out of uh, parts from like what you'd see in a, a scale. Cool. So this kite, you should see this shape of it, people. Yeah, it's kind of a classic delta kite. So it's like almost like an upside down V. How, how far do you think it was out last night? Um, maybe a thousand feet. A thousand feet. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun when it... Because up, up there, it's a little bit more stable. So the thing is that Colin is playing with science here, and that's what we're interested in. Colin and I are still up here in the shimmering dusk of a fire-tinged sky up here at about uh, 10 to 9. And if we look over to the west, we see a beautiful sliver of a crescent moon, and I'm thinking that's probably Venus there, just off to the left. It looks so good. Yeah, actually, yeah. The kite is flying. It's working. So let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. And as we explore the night sky, we can let our kite and our imagination wing way up to become a twinkly star grouping near the Big Dipper, known as the kite. It's in the constellation known as Bootes. Check the Skywatcher Facebook page for a diagram and other sources for this segment. And look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR. Utah Public Radio, a translator station statewide and streaming live. I opened my closet of really tired, old-looking clothes. 
And I think with this like blast of courage and insanity, I'm not gonna wear any of these. I'm just gonna wear my snow boots and my trench coat. Stories about midnight adventures. That's next time on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Tomorrow morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The Moth is true stories told live, and this October you can experience it in person with all of us here at UPR. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on October 21st for the Moth main stage. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org. This week in This American Life, Shelly was waiting tables in Phoenix during the pandemic, trying her hardest not to get COVID. I would have people ask me, like, pull down your mask, I want to see how much to tip you. Pull down your mask, I want to see how much to tip you? Yes. Wow. They would want to see how pretty I was before they tipped me. What it's really been like to be an essential worker this week. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio.